Welcome to the podcast. I'll start us off by by saying, I mean, here we are, look, after a year of the pandemic, um, probably one of the most extraordinary experiences any of us have had. What do you think the unexpected psychological carryovers might be? I mean, do you think we've we've kind of, part of me thinks that people have got more fragile, that we've, it's almost like there's a sort of learned timidity Have you you seen any evidence of that or how would you characterize it? I think we've definitely all become much more aware of mental health um, and that it's a real thing and that uh, mental health affects strong and healthy people. Um, We all suffered trauma uh, during COVID. Um, Some of us dealt with it earlier. Some of us dealt with it later. Some of us are still dealing with it, Um, but nobody escapes it. Um, When when COVID first started, you know, many of us had to pivot our organizations, had to pivot our businesses very quickly. Um, and, and so I, like many others, we went into mission mode. And I called a friend of mine who was active duty military, and I asked him a very simple question. How do I compartmentalize my emotions so that I can stay focused on the mission? And he gave me a very stern warning. He said, you can't. He said, we can compartmentalize our emotions for only a short period of time, but no one, no one escapes the trauma of combat. Um, and he said, you may not even experience the trauma while you're in it. You may not experience it when you first come home. You may experience it months later. He says, I experience it four or five months after I get home. So immediately I hung up the phone and called all my A-type personality friends and said, okay, we think we're good, but we're going to get hit by this at some point. And we made a deal that when we started to feel off our game, we would call each other um, uh, safe space. And we made another deal that there would be no crying alone that if you had to cry, you picked up the phone and you called somebody. Well, about four or five months into COVID, I started to feel off my game and I didn't know what was going on. And so I called that same uh, uh, friend in the military and I asked no leading questions. I simply asked him, tell me what your symptoms are when you suffer the trauma when you come home from combat. And he said, well, number one, he falls out of his sleep pattern, he said. He said he starts going to bed late for no reason and doesn't want to get up in the morning. And I thought to myself, yep. He says he has some unproductive days and he comes with an excuse like, it's okay, you know, you deserve a rest, it's fine. But then he has another and another and another. And I thought to myself, yep. And he said he becomes very antisocial where he doesn't want to ask for help and he definitely doesn't want to talk to anybody. And I thought to myself, yep. And I realized what I was going through was trauma. And I was afraid to use the D word, depression, for fear that that was some sort of diagnosis. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid of that word, um, but that's exactly what I was going through. I was going through lowercase d depression, um, and I followed the rule that we set with uh, that we set with our friends. And I and I called people because one of the things I asked my friend is like, "How do you overcome it?" He said, "You have to force yourself back into a sleep pattern, and you have to force yourself to call friends and ask for help." And so I think one of the things that I think 
I think that we that comes out of COVID that I, is we recognized just the importance of human connection. You know, in this fast-paced digital world, we kidded ourselves to think that we had connections just because we were connected. But it was amazing to see when COVID started, regardless of someone's age or uh, 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 technological competency, we all picked up the phone. Like young people were talking to each other. And I think that intense craving for a human voice and human touch um, I think we, we, had, we were reminded just how fragile we are as human beings. That, that phrase you mentioned, no crying alone, that's powerful. Did you, I mean, did, forgive I me asking, did, did you cry with someone? Yes. Um, I, I followed my, my, own, my own counsel to my friends. And when I had to cry, when I was overwhelmed, I, I picked up the phone and I just cried. Um, and I had friends call me and do the same. And there was um, healing in that. There, the most important thing that came from it was that you that we didn't none of us felt alone, and and there's intense safety, that amazing sense of safety that we all desire as human beings. Um, you know, you you can't feel safe when when you're vulnerable. Like that's when we need it the most. But but you have to build those relationships. You know, you build those relationships in the happy times and the good times where you you think you're strong and think you're great. You know, you, it's, it's very hard to, to start building those relationships in the moment of crisis. Um, and I think that's sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a lesson for leadership, quite frankly, you, you know, which is you can't judge the quality of a crew by how a ship performs in calm waters. You judge the quality of a crew by how a ship performs in rough waters. But the time in calm waters is when you're building relationship and when you're building trust. And you don't really actually know if you have trusting relationships and trusting teams and loving relationships until the crisis strikes. And I think I heard, this, I, I, I heard this from a lot of people. When COVID happened, they commented on how they realized who their real friends were. Some people kind of fell by the wayside. It was nothing personal. It's just like we didn't call each other and we were still, you know, weren't angry or anything. And there are some people who came out of the woodwork to check in on us and those friendships flourished. And, and that's what I mean. That's, that's the, it, takes, it takes hardship for those friendships and that trust to really bear fruit. And, uh, but that's, that's why we have to invest in people when we're doing well and we don't think we need anybody. And I think we forget that. I think we forget I mean, that. What would, you, what would you say to someone who has realized that, that they're in this moment, what's been a really difficult year, and they actually don't feel that there's someone they could, for example, you know, pick up the phone and cry with? Um, are they... Is it hopeless for them until until this this passes, or what, what? What would you say to them? There, there is an irony. There's an irony in 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 when we need help. Um, and when I was reading, when I was writing the book, Leaders Eat Last, I had the opportunity um, to spend some time with and and visit Alcoholics Anonymous. And it is a it is a remarkable organization. And um, we're many of us are familiar with the twelve step program. And many of us are familiar with the first step, which is admitting you have a problem. Um, but then it's, it's the other 11 steps that also matter. And Alcoholics Anonymous knows that if you master the first 11 step, steps, but not the 12th, you are likely to succumb to the disease. But if you master the 12 steps, you're more likely to overcome the disease. That 12th step um, is to help another alcoholic. It's service. And so there's a great irony when, when we need help to actually help someone who's struggling with the same thing as us, and it is the most healing thing we can do. So 
it, you know, if we need someone to cry with, it's to offer the shoulder for somebody else to cry with. If, if, if we're feeling lonely, it's to, it's to be there for someone else who's struggling with loneliness. And this, is, this is, goes way beyond these subjects, which is if we're looking for love to help somebody else find love, if we're looking for the job we love to help somebody else find the job that they love, and there's tremendous value in service. And the number of people, and you hear about these things all the time, you talk to people why they chose to go in the profession they went into, especially if they're in the service profession. Like let's say they, uh, somebody is a counselor for trauma. Um, and you say, why, why did you go into this profession? You're like, well, when I was younger, I suffered a trauma and somebody was there to counsel me and I decided I wanted to commit my life to doing that for others. This is what happens when, with service. Um, and, and, and we forget just because we live in a modern world, we're actually a, a very old fashioned machine. You know, he, the human animal is a legacy machine living in a modern world. And we still work the same way we used to. And we desperately need each other to survive and thrive as much as we did when we were living in, in huts and small tribes of 150 people. Um, and so, so service, service is the thing. It sounds like even for someone who's not feeling like depressed or on the edge right now, but it, a good checklist question for them to ask is, is, is there someone I could reach out to actually, that there may be other people who are in a much worse situation. And maybe, maybe there is a call I can make that would be incredibly valuable to that person and build, help build a relationship with the future. Yeah. Are you okay? Is the best is, you know, how yeah. are you? Is it's sort of, you know, a friend of mine, who, who, George Flynn, he says his test for a, a leader is, is um, if they ask you how you're doing, they actually care about the answer. Hmm. Uh, and I, I really like that. Okay. I, I, boy, I could talk with you for hours about this, but we're going to go to some questions now. So here's a question from Kayum. Um, if there is no way to get back to normal, as you said, then are we on the right path of building new normal already? Or can you help us with a blueprint that new normal should be based on? So um, uh, blueprint, no. Guidance is yes. Um, I think that um, humanity has to be, you know, we, we have to remember that humanity matters. And when I say humanity, I don't mean big H humanity, I mean little H humanity, our humanity. Um, when COVID first happened, um, so many leaders um, leaned on their humanity. Um, whether they were effect, effective or ineffective leaders prior to COVID, many of them picked up the phone and said, are you okay? They called their teams just to check in on them. Or they called their friends to say, are you okay? How are you? Um, well, this we don't need a global pandemic to do that. That's called, that's called good leadership, and we should be doing that all the time. Um, and we should be encouraging those in our charge to do the same for those in their charge. You know, the, the, the hierarchy can, can still be effective that way. Um, I hope that remains. I, I hope that remains. I hope the use of the telephone uh, remains, that we don't just go back to, to texting all the time. Um, mm. uh, I, I hope that, the, that putting our phones away and having family dinner remains. Um, mm. it's, it's the rem I think there's a lot of kids that will actually come through this with stronger relationships with their siblings if they have them and stronger relationship with, with their parents because they, they had so much time together. And mm. kids who may have struggled prior because they weren't getting the kind of attention they needed because their parents were so busy with work, you know, even if mom or dad are, 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 uh, are, are busy on a, on a Zoom call all day, that hour that they would ordinarily just like go get a cup of coffee or something that they could focus on their kid, I think it's, it's I think a lot of kids actually will come out of this and kids are remarkably adaptable. They're mm. remarkably adaptable. Um, here's a question from Marius. Um, could you give us some tips on how to discover ah, why? Uh, absolutely. I'll give you a little exercise um, that you can do with your friends. Uh, it's called the friends exercise. Um, find a friend you love and who loves you 
the person who, if they called you at three o'clock in the morning, you take the call and you know they would do the same for you. Do not do this with a sibling. Do not this do this with a spouse. Do not do this with a, with a parent. Those relationships are too close. Do it with a best friend. And go up to them and ask the, the simple question, why are we friends? And they're going to look at you like you're crazy because you're asking them to put into words a feeling. You're asking to use a part of the brain, the neocortex, that doesn't uh, control feelings uh, and, uh, and to put the thing that exists in the limbic brain into language, which it doesn't do. And so it's actually a very difficult, difficult question. They're going to say, I don't know. It's not that they don't know, it's that they can't put it into words. So ironically, you stop asking the question why and you start asking the question what, because what is a rational question, right? What is it about me that I know that you would be there for me no matter what? And they, they, they won't know how to answer it. They'll start describing you. I don't know, you're funny, I trust you, you've always been there for me, you play devil's advocate. Good, that's the definition of a friend. What specifically is it about me that I know you'd be there for me no matter what. And they'll continue to do the same. They'll keep trying to describe you. You keep playing devil's advocate. That's the definition of a best friend. You get the idea. Eventually, they'll give up. Eventually, they'll give up and they'll start describing themselves. And they'll say, and this is what my friend said to me when I did it with them. They said, I don't know, Simon. I don't even have to talk to you. I could just sit in the same room as you and I feel inspired. And I got goosebumps. In fact, I'm getting them right now. They will articulate the value you have in their life and you will have some sort of emotional response, goosebumps, or you'll well up. Because what they're telling you is your why. Your why is the thing you give to the world. You can do this with multiple friends and they will say almost exactly, if not the exact same thing, because that is your why. That is the thing you give to the world. So it'll, it may not give you the exact language, but it'll put you squarely in the ballpark for what your why is. Here's an anonymous question. Um, I have a friend who is certainly or is currently struggling with depression and is just not like he used to be. I don't know what to say to him. He's actually annoyed by the question, how are you doing? Yeah. How can I offer my help? So I, I, one of the things I learned by accident a couple years ago is sometimes statements work better than questions because questions people can avoid, right? How are you? This is what we all did during COVID. How are you? Fine. I'm fine. Everyone's fine. Right. And then, the, then what do you do with that? And so um, try making a statement right? Um, something's wrong. Something's different. You're not the same. I'm worried about you. Make statements. Um, and it leaves very little room for somebody to divert, uh, 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 you know, uh, divert the conversation. Um, um, uh, you're not, you're not, you're not the person I know. Um, and, and do it with love and empathy. Um, and the most important thing, don't show up to solve the problem. The, the, especially when you're, when you're starting to have a difficult conversation, you don't show up to solve the problem. You show up to create an environment in which they'd be willing to open up to you. That's, that's, the, only, that's the only goal. So um, try a statement instead of a question. So here's, here's the last question. Uh, I'm going to ask this for me. Um, what do you mean, Simon, when you say that everyone is a leader? Um, Leadership has nothing to do with rank or title. I know many people who sit at the highest levels of organizations who are not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we don't trust them and we wouldn't follow them. And yet I also know many people who sit at very low levels of organizations that have no formal rank and no formal authority. And yet they've made the choice to look after the person to the left of them and look after the person to the right of them. And we would trust them and follow them anywhere. Leadership is the responsibility 
to see those around us rise. It's the responsibility to take care of those around us. That's what leadership is. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in our charge. Um, and any, the only thing title and authority allow you to do is lead with greater scale. Um, every single one of us has the opportunity to be the leader we wish we had. Every single one of us. Simon, thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Amazon is offering sign-on bonuses up to $1,000. Plus, get up to $20 an hour for select roles. The best part? We're hiring near you. So start now to take home something greater. New, higher wages with a sign-on bonus. A range of real benefits and career growth opportunities in a top-rated workplace. So earn more and see how great pay and sign-on bonuses can lead to a greater life for you. Go to Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Food delivery is the best. That is, until it leaves your wallet running on empty. But don't let that spoil your appetite. Regions Life Green Checking and our suite of budgeting tools can help you prioritize your spending around what you love, like cheese fries whenever you feel like it. Plus, your account comes with a contactless check card. Simply tap to pay and be on your way to braving a new beginning. Learn more at regions.com slash brave the beginning. Regions Bank, member FDIC. The Gone Cold Podcast may contain violent or graphic subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Just northeast of Dallas, Texas, is Hunt County, a place that differs in almost every conceivable way to its metropolitan neighbor. The population of the entire county, around 98,000, is but a fraction of many Dallas suburbs, and besides the county seat, Greenville, There's hardly a trace in Hunt County of anything that resembles a city. That's certainly no bad thing. This particular area of the Blackland Prairie region is quite beautiful, breaking up the grassy prairie land along streams in the county's floodplains are dense thickets of hickory, pecan, black willow, and cottonwood trees, among others. But as beautiful as Hunt County is, it's equally as dark. If you ask Sheriff Randy Meeks, whose career in Hunt County has lasted over 30 years, the manufacturing and trafficking of methamphetamines are to blame for the area's crime problem. It's black and white, cut and dry for Sheriff Meeks, a lawman who is no stranger to controversy. In an op-ed for the Hunt County Herald Banner, Meeks quoted a Bible verse in defense of one of his deputies who was alleged to have assaulted a pregnant woman during the execution of a child custody warrant. He said that citizens should read the scripture. Should they not comply with law enforcement, Meeks believes, they are in violation of God's law and subject to whatever they've got coming, to paraphrase. Sheriff Meeks didn't understand all the fuss about a 30-second video that captured his deputy beating a pregnant woman. She was charged by the same Hunt County jury that, by the way, outright refused to indict the deputy who beat her. 
The Hunt County Sheriff's Office has been sued for several unlawful arrest and unlawful detention incidents, and actor Tiani Warden, ex-wife of actor Gary Busey, died while in custody at the Hunt County Jail. These controversies and Sheriff Meeks's old-school, Old Testament methods and beliefs, however, are hardly the darkest cloud that hovers over Hunt County. Perhaps the bad press Meeks and his department have seen over the years, only further shrouded in mystery the seven unsolved missing persons cases there, including the 2017 disappearance of a 70-year-old respected community member. It is unclear at this time if Mr. Chambers somehow became injured and walked away from the location looking for help or if he was taken against his will. We have more questions than we have answers. In 1986, 25-year-old Greenville resident David Glenn Bratton's 1977 cream-colored Chevrolet Nova was found in Delta County, which borders Hunt County to the northeast. He was last seen in Greenville on July 24, 1986. Carrie Mae Parker was 23 years old when she went missing on March 17, 1991 from Quinlan. There is a ton of rumor and controversy surrounding Carrie's disappearance, which was the subject of a long-form podcast called Buried, which premiered in 2017. Despite rumor and gossip that suggested she and the car had been buried, Carrie's 1980 Buick Skylark was found at the bottom of Lake Tawakini in southeast Hunt County in February of 2021, but no remains were found within and Carrie's disappearance, perhaps, is as mysterious as it was before the discovery. In May of 1994, 37-year-old Rosin Jean Payne left her house in Royce City. She was seen after that, reportedly, in West Tawakini at a bar called The Nook and at a friend's house in Hawk Cove, but never again. Rosin's 1989 pea-green Volvo sedan was also never found, and years after she disappeared, her family discovered that, for whatever reason or screw-up, her missing persons report was no longer active. They filed another. At 7 a.m. on May 1st, 2001, 14-year-old Sarah Elizabeth Kenslow was dropped off at Greenville Middle School, never to be seen again the youngest active missing person in Hunt County. Sarah skipped school and was to meet some friends at a cemetery, but she never arrived. When an 18-year-old named Curtis Wayne Bell was arrested for the sexual assault of a child a week after Sarah vanished, 
It was discovered that Bell and the missing teenager had been in a sexual relationship. Bell was among the friends Sarah was supposed to meet at the cemetery the day she disappeared. Sarah and Bell had talked about running away to Mexico together, according to the 14-year-old's diary. Several friends of the missing teenager failed polygraph exams, which led police to believe they were hiding something. Never mind the fact that the stress of taking a lie detector test for a teenager must be through the roof. Law enforcement believes Sarah Kinslow left of her own free will, even though she took no clothes or her purse. 44-year-old Lisa Lee Chandler, while at home near Wolf City, spoke to her mother on the phone on September 23, 2007, and was never heard from again. All her belongings, including her clothing, glasses, cigarettes, purse, car, and beloved dog, were left behind. The door to her home, left unlocked. Although canine units tracked Lisa's scent five miles south of her home toward Greenville, along Texas State Highway 34, no trace of what happened to her has ever been found. On July 23, 2011, 51-year-old Matthew James Hallman texted his wife to tell her he was leaving the couple's second property in far south Greenville to come home to Rockwall, a city in Rockwall County, which borders Hunt County to the southwest. Matthew Hallman was never heard from again. Left behind at Matthew's Greenville house was his wallet and vehicle. He'd bought a large amount of camping gear earlier that day. Hunt County Sheriff Randy Meeks theorized that Matthew had been camping out in the woods behind he and his wife's residence in Greenville, though it's unclear just how Meeks came to that theory. Regardless, it didn't pan out. Searches were conducted by foot, horseback, and by divers in nearby bodies of water, but Matthew was nowhere to be found. Still, Sheriff Meeks seems to not even entertain the idea that foul play was involved, a belief he holds, too, for another disappearance shrouded in mysterious circumstance and in many ways mirrors the disappearance of Matthew Hallman, the 2017 disappearance of 70-year-old retired Dallas firefighter Mike Chambers. I spent a lot of time looking for a mobile game that would give me a good challenge. I wanted a match-three puzzle game, but not the same old, same old. I needed something that offered more than just the same basic strategy over and over again. Just when I was ready to throw in the towel, I stumbled upon Best Fiends, the game that always keeps my attention and consistently turns the gears of my brain. Best Fiends is more than just smashing candy. Every level presents a new challenging puzzle with its own goals, obstacles, and sometimes things to help you along. I haven't been able to put down the game since I started well over a year ago, and even at level 3950, Best Fiends continues to present fresh puzzles and new events. That's a good thing because I can't put the game down. It's chock full of cool little characters, various bugs and other small creatures, and it's colorful. A real candy-for-the-eye kind of thing. So if you've had trouble finding a puzzle game that's more than just blowing up cupcakes or whatever, give Best Fiends a go. 
If you get hooked, you can blame me. I can take it. So download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends Free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Streaming only on Peacock. John Wayne Gacy is suspected of having killed as many as 32. Straight from the killer's mouth. They want you to believe that I alone committed these murders. The new gripping six-part documentary series that investigates the crimes that shocked the nation. The thing everybody thought they knew wasn't the whole story. John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. All episodes streaming now. Only on Peacock. Starting Memorial Day, Lifetime kicks off Summer of Secrets. Featuring all new ripped from the headlines movies. Secrets of a Gold Digger Killer starring Julie Benz. Gone Mom, The Disappearance of Jennifer Dulos starring Annabeth Gish. Left for Dead, The Ashley Reeves Story starring Jenny Garth. And Soccer Mom Madam starring Jana Kramer. From the crime scene to the movie screen, Summer of Secrets starts Memorial Day at 8, only on Lifetime. Michael Glenn Chambers, who went by Mike, was born in Ellis County, Texas, on November 27, 1946. He was the youngest of two boys born to Alton and Fanny Chambers. At Italy High School, the namesake of the town he grew up in, Mike was a sports guy. He played basketball and football. The summer after graduating Italy High in 1965, Mike married his sweetheart, Vicky, and they had two children together, both daughters, Sherry, in 1967, and Susie, in 1969. As is often the case when marrying young, things didn't work out between the high school sweethearts, and in 1980, Mike and Vicky divorced. That same year, Mike married again, this time to a woman named Becca. Becca and Mike adopted a boy named John shortly after they tied the knot, and after that, adopted a boy named Justin. Mike and Becca's was the perfect marriage, his daughter Susie would later say. Her father and stepmother were very affectionate and enjoyed one another's sense of humor. Mike was, it seems, particularly enamored with Becca. He almost always fixed her breakfast and dinner and always opened doors for her. Dad spoiled Becca, Susie said. He doted on her. Well before this second marriage, Mike's feet were firmly planted in his career. He began working as a firefighter and paramedic in 1972 for the city of Dallas, where he retired in 2008. Some folks have a difficult time after retirement, not really sure of what to get into to occupy the sudden abundance of free time. Mike Chambers was not one of those folks. He and Becca had been living in the Quinlan area of Hunt County for some time and had plenty of friends, and Mike stayed extremely active. He was a deacon at First Baptist Church in Quinlan and sang in a gospel band who performed for assisted living facilities and, of course, at church. The band was called the Joint Heirs Quartet. Perhaps what kept Mike Chambers busy most of the time, however, was his love for classic cars. In the workshop at his home, Mike restored classic muscle cars, like the 1970 Plymouth Satellite he and his daughter Susie's husband spent a year fixing up. 
Mike would spend all day in the workshop tinkering with a car and was a member of the local car club, Texas Most Wanted, and loved showing off his work at car shows. But Mike Chambers spent plenty of time with his family, too. In fact, everyone in the family said he was always there should they need him. He was the calm, loving, and wise patriarch. Known as Papa to his nine grandkids and six great-grandkids, Mike could be seen at family get-togethers in the middle of the floor with children piled high atop him like they were trying to wrangle a wild stallion. Bad knees be damned, Mike loved playing with his grandchildren. Besides his fireman's knees, which hurt but seemingly never held him back, he had no physical or mental disabilities or ailments. Health-wise, for a 70-year-old, Mike was fit as a fiddle. Mike's family weren't the only ones who thought the world of him. He was a firefighter, of course, for 36 years, which is an incredibly noble profession that often comes with an equally incredible and deserved amount of respect. But it wasn't just the obvious that made Mike well-loved around the Quinlan area. He was friendly and outgoing with his neighbors and the members of the community in general. The garage doors on his workshop were always open, and Mike was always ready to talk cars with whoever happened to pop up while he was out there working. If you needed a hand with anything, Mike Chambers was your guy, and anyone in the community would tell you about his heart of gold. On the early morning of Friday, March 10th, 2017, Mike and Becca Chambers spent some quiet, normal time together before she left for her job as a home health aide. Mike had normal plans that day, from chores like cutting firewood at the back of the couple's property to tinkering with cars, topics that were among the small talk between Mike and Becca that morning, as was the grandson's soccer game Mike was looking forward to the next day. Mike Chambers was a creature of habit and kept his life and time regimented. But when Becca called him at 8 a.m. asking him to pick her up mascara from the store, he was happy to do it. So, later that morning, at 11 a.m., Mike Chambers was captured by surveillance cameras at the local Walmart, which is about 8.6 miles from home, entering the store. In the footage, Mike is alone. He's captured inside at the registers, also alone, and again by cameras at 11.15 a.m., leaving the Walmart. Other footage shows him get in his truck and leave the store's parking lot, heading in the direction of he and Becca's home, which was located on the 7000 block of Farm to Market Road 2101. In the surveillance footage that captured Mike, no one is seen following him. No one behind him as he left the store, and no one tailing him in another vehicle as he drove off. It was the last time Mike Chambers was seen again. At 3 p.m., a neighbor who had view of Mike and Becca's property arrived home. The neighbor spent the rest of the afternoon outside and saw nothing out of the ordinary going on at the Chambers' home. This, among other facts of the case, led the Hunt County Sheriff's Office to ascertain that Mike Chambers went missing sometime between noon and 3 p.m. 
At 5.51 p.m., Becca texted Mike to let him know she was heading home, but he didn't respond. On this day, March 10, 2017, the sun set at about 6.32 p.m., and the weather was in the mid to high 70s. The ground was dry. It hadn't rained for several days. Becca Chambers pulled up to her and Mike's home at approximately 6.15 p.m., Mike's truck was there, but right away, there were signs something wasn't right. Usually, Mike left the garage door open for Becca and made his way out to help her with her things when she arrived. But this day, neither of those things happened. The lights in the house were off and the door was locked. Becca entered the home and called out for her husband, but he did not answer. She tried calling his cell phone, but it went straight to voicemail. Becca was noticeably shaken when she reached out to Mike's daughter, Susie. Anxious is the word Susie later used. None of the family had heard from him either. This was not like Mike Chambers. He was predictable and never skimped out on the daily routine. He always made his whereabouts known to someone, especially Becca. But in the rare event he did not, he was easily found. Not this time. In the couple's bedroom and bathroom were the items Mike had purchased from Walmart that day, and in the bathroom wastebasket was the discarded receipt. All the items he'd bought were accounted for. Becca knew Mike had planned to cut firewood near the back of their property and thought perhaps that he was either still out there doing that or an accident had occurred. She enlisted the help of neighbors, retired Greenville police chief Barry Paris and his wife Sandra. They looked as best they could on the chamber's property, but it was getting dark and the property was ten acres, most of which were heavily wooded. The doors to Mike's shop, where he restored cars, was locked. Becca retrieved the keys, and she and the Parises went inside. Perhaps an accident had occurred there, they thought, but Mike was not inside. His tools, keys, wallet, and baseball cap were there, sitting at a place Mike normally laid them down as he worked. He had obviously been doing something in the workshop that day. But then Becca noticed something troubling. She saw quarter-sized drops of blood on the floor of the workshop though at first she thought it could be transmission fluid, which usually has a red color or tint. Barry Paris, the former police chief neighbor, called 911 at 6.55 p.m. and reported that Mike Chambers was nowhere to be found, and that his belongings and what appeared to be blood were found in the man's shop. The belongings and the blood, apparently, were near each other. As she waited for police to arrive, Becca called a family friend named Penny, asking the woman to come over. According to Penny, Becca made the comment that she needed her to, quote, be on my side. Penny advised Becca to call 911 again. It's unclear why it was taking so long for authorities to arrive, particularly considering the call was placed by a retired local police chief. At about 7.45 p.m., Becca called the Hunt County Sheriff's Office. Soon after that, a deputy arrived at the chamber's home and discovered several potential clues, or perhaps red herrings. 
This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Amazon is offering sign-on bonuses up to $1,000. Plus, get up to $20 an hour for select roles. The best part? We're hiring near you. So start now to take home something greater. New, higher wages with a sign-on bonus. A range of real benefits and career growth opportunities in a top-rated workplace. So earn more and see how great pay and sign-on bonuses can lead to a greater life for you. Go to Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. When a Hunt County Sheriff's deputy arrived at the home of Mike Chambers, who was nowhere to be found, he began looking for signs that the man was the victim of a robbery. The deputy wanted to either rule it in as a possibility or rule it out. It became obvious relatively quickly that a robbery had not occurred. Mike's 12-gauge shotgun hadn't been touched, or fired for that matter, and all of his expensive tools were spoken for. Though there was no cash in his wallet, all of Mike's credit cards were there. The lack of money in the wallet wasn't really a clue as far as robbery goes. His tools were worth far more than any cash he would have been carrying. But the wallet did provide something, or rather lacked something. Mike Chambers' driver's license was gone. That was incredibly odd. Also seemingly odd to the deputy, perhaps telling, was the blood on the floor of the workshop. The droplets were in a circular side-by-side pattern, some overlapping each other, and they trailed to the door exiting the workshop, but then stopped. Deputies then discovered a wooden dowel rod with bloody handprints. Hunt County Sheriff Randy Meeks commented that his first thought was that someone had hit Mike Chambers on the head with the rod before taking him somewhere. The amount of blood on the floor didn't suggest a struggle, Sheriff Meeks said, and called the amount minimal. But that and the bloody dowel rod certainly did not sit right. He added that they couldn't even tell how long the blood had been there, which presumably meant it was completely dry. I'm not a forensic scientist or investigator by any stretch of the imagination, but I'd be willing to bet that determining whether the blood was recent or old is totally within the realm of possibility. Even a layperson might imagine that the amount of dust atop the blood droplets could at least provide an estimate of the age. Regardless, these were not the only strange details to be found. Far from it. In Mike's truck, a deputy found $1,000 in cash in the console, more evidence against the robbery theory. But it was difficult for Mike Chambers' family to imagine any other reason to hurt him. He didn't have a single enemy. Upon further inspection of the workshop, it was determined that a tarp was missing, a detail that is certainly troubling for obvious reasons. Later, it was discovered that something else, too, was not there that should have been, but we aren't there yet. That night, for the next several hours, 
a massive search around the chamber's property was conducted. Law enforcement and family participated, but the effort was fruitless. The pitch blackness of the rural Hunt County night and the thick woods only hindered the possibility of discovering a thing. Hunt County Sheriff Randy Meeks was quick on his feet and called the Texas Department of Public Safety to request a helicopter equipped with a flare unit or a heat-detecting device. By midnight, nothing was found, and the search ended. At this point, authorities were well aware that something was wrong, and they released a statement saying they believed Mike Chambers was in danger. The next day, Saturday, March 11, 2017, Hunt County Sheriff's Office investigators began an attempt to piece together a timeline of Mike's movements the day he vanished. Like Mike's driver's license, his cell phone was missing, so meanwhile, Sheriff Meeks had it pinged. It was no use. The phone was either turned off or out of juice. However, authorities were able to determine that the last activity, the last time Mike's cell phone caused a tower ping, was at 5.53 p.m., somewhere near the west side of Lake Tawakini. Now, if you'll remember, Mike's wife, Becca, texted him at 5.51 p.m. to tell him she was on her way home. Though there is a two-minute discrepancy, perhaps that ping has something to do with that text. The Lake Tawakini Causeway, the bridge that crosses the body of water near West Tawakini, is an approximate 20-minute drive from the chamber's home by car. With the tower ping in mind... Sheriff's deputies and the flare unit chopper redirected their efforts to Lake Tawakini. The helicopter searched by air and divers in the water beneath the causeway. The surveillance footage of Mike's last movements at the Walmart were also found. Upon visiting stores the eight and a half miles between where he was last seen, Walmart, and his home, Detectives discovered no evidence Mike Chambers had made any other stops. No one in Mike's neighborhood had seen him or anything suspicious, for that matter. Bloodhounds were lent to Hunt County authorities in an attempt to track Mike. Beginning at the man's workshop, the dogs picked up on his scent and led their handlers to a specific area at the corner of the Chambers' property close to the road. There was a culvert, one large enough for a person to walk under and do so without anyone seeing. The culvert led to a pond. The pond was dredged, dive teams searched, and sonar was used. Still, no Mike Chambers. The county had employed nearly every resource available. Helicopters, cadaver dogs, divers, expert searchers, and even drones. The chamber's property and the surrounding areas were searched by more than 100 volunteers. By the first business day of the following week, hundreds of missing persons flyers could be seen at virtually every spot in Hunt County. The flyers described Mike Chambers, white male, blue eyes, with balding gray hair. He was 70 years old at the time. Mike is 6 feet 3 inches tall and weighs 225 pounds with a small scar on his upper lip and surgical scars on his right knee and both shoulders. The last time Mike was seen, he was wearing a blue t-shirt 
the usual Dallas Fire and Rescue t-shirt, black pants, and a blue baseball cap, though that cap was found in his workshop. On Monday, March 13th, Sheriff Meeks held a press conference. He described the blood on the floor, but insisted that it wasn't enough to suggest foul play. However, Meeks did admit that details indicated Mike Chambers did not leave on his own, that he was taken against his will. Well, either that, Meeks said, or he became injured and walked away looking for help. Sheriff Meeks got downright emotional in a plea for the public's help. I was a Sunday school teacher for several years. I've never known a more devout Christian man than Michael Chambers. Uh, I trust him with my life. Uh, He's a great family man. He loved his wife dearly. Meeks said, his eyes filled with tears. I am really torn because we don't have any answers, and we're just have followed every lead we possibly can, can follow. And we're just coming up with nothing. And it's just tearing us apart as, as a family and as law enforcement agency also. This tearful plea would later be called grandstanding, or worse, by one individual who we'll get to later. But upon viewing the press conference, it certainly seems genuine. If Meeks is faking, he's more deserving of an Academy Award than Meryl Streep. Anyway, an incredible amount of Mike's friends showed up to search on Wednesday, March 15th, 2017, as did some who'd never met him. One volunteer was fellow Dallas firefighter Vince Alloy, who worked as many years as Mike with Dallas Fire and Rescue, 36, but never met him. Still, Vince considered Mike his family. These volunteers searched through ravines, heavy thickets, and dense brush on a five-acre area just northeast of Quinlan. Though this search was called extensive, not a trace of Mike Chambers was found. Tracking dogs that day picked up on a scent in a densely wooded area just southwest of the Chambers property, but later lost it. A second dive at Lake Tawakini was also conducted, but there were huge problems. The water was particularly murky, and the concrete and rebar that lie beneath that murky water and the bridge, where the efforts were concentrated, presented a major risk for the dive teams. While all these well-publicized efforts were taking place, Sheriff Meeks had sent out samples of blood on Mike's workshop floor for testing. He also brought in a forensic blood spatter expert from Harris County for a qualified opinion on the droplets. The blood was found to indeed belong to Mike Chambers. According to the expert, the blood droplets could have been from Mike being struck in the head or upper torso, or perhaps Mike could have been bleeding from the mouth or nose. In both instances, and since the droplets stopped at the door exiting the shop, He then would have been carried off. But there's a few gigantic howevers here. The bright red color of the blood suggested that it contained an anticoagulant. Though it is never fully explained, we are of the understanding that Mike Chambers was on no medications, no blood thinners. This led to speculation that the blood had been kept in a vial and anticoagulant was added to preserve it. 
The blood spatter expert was of the opinion that the virtually perfectly round droplets were a little too nice and neat. They looked purposefully dropped, suggesting a staged scene. Unfortunately, when samples of the blood were sent for DNA testing, they were not tested for anticoagulants. If it's been tested for such since, investigators are keeping it close to the chest. Early on, uncertainty and grief led to discord within the Chambers family. With absolutely nothing panning out, Mike's family immediately thought of Justin, the boy he and Becca had raised since they adopted him at age four. Justin was then 31 years old. For years, according to Mike's family, Justin continually asked his father for money, often guilting him until he relented. For example, one family member said Justin would tell Mike he was going to lose his apartment if he didn't get some money fast. About six months before Mike Chambers disappeared, it was reported he had stopped giving in to Justin's pleas for cash. It was time, Mike apparently said, for Justin to take care of himself. After that, allegedly, Justin called Mike from time to time and became belligerent as they spoke often threatening him, again allegedly, though the nature of these threats is unknown to us, other than a family member recalling Justin saying, I hate you, Dad, which is terrible, but to be fair, hardly a threat. The family told authorities of their concerns with Justin, who lived in Granbury, about two hours west of the chamber's home in Hunt County. However, Justin worked the entire day of March the 10th, 2017, so he could not have harmed his father, Mike Chambers. Anyway, Justin told the cops he would never hurt his dad, and the rift between them was about far more than just money. It's hardly the last time family would be implicated in the disappearance of Mike Chambers. We'll pick it up from there on the next episode of Gone Cold, Part 2 of The Uncanny Disappearance of Michael Chambers If you have any information about the disappearance of Michael Glenn Chambers, please contact the Hunt County Sheriff's Office at 903-453-6838. Gone Cold will be in Austin June 4th through 6th at this year's Crime Con, just a few days after the release of this episode. We'd love to meet y'all, so if you plan on attending, please be sure to stop by our table on Podcast Row and say hi. If you're planning on buying a ticket, you can use the promo code COLD for 10% off the admission price. Hope to see y'all there. You can support Gone Cold at patreon.com forward slash Gone Cold Podcast. Donors at all levels there get the show ad-free, and for just two and a half bucks a month, You'll have access to episodes featuring stories of mostly solved Texas crimes and the bad actors who perpetrated them, such as The Butcher Painter and our latest there, The Tourniquet Killer Part 1, among others. Thanks so much to everyone who supports us there. We could not do this without you, and we appreciate your support beyond words. If you'd like to help find answers for the families of unsolved crime victims from all over, or help identify a Jane or John Doe, please visit dnasolves.com, where you can submit your DNA data from a consumer testing company like Ancestry or 23andMe, 
to their database. Your DNA data at dnasolves.com is used only for aiding in law enforcement investigations. As always, we'll provide a link in the show notes. The television program disappeared from ID Discovery, eParisExtra.com, eGreenvilleExtra.com, the Hunt County Herald Banner, NBCDFW.com, Firehouse.com, CharlieProject.org, and the Dallas Morning News were used as sources for this episode. Thanks for listening, y'all. Amazon is offering sign-on bonuses up to $1,000, plus get up to $20 an hour for select roles. The best part? We're hiring near you. So start now to take home something greater. New, higher wages with a sign-on bonus, a range of real benefits, and career growth opportunities in a top-rated workplace. So earn more and see how great pay and sign-on bonuses can lead to a greater life for you. Go to Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. This is Peacock. I love it! It's streaming your favorite shows, movies, live sports, breaking news, exclusive originals. It's The Office. That's what she said. Chrisley knows best. It's going to be Todd's way or the highway. And Peacock original shows like Punky Brewster. Holy mackinole. So whether you're in the mood for every live WWE pay-per-view or every episode of Law & Order SVU, Peacock's got you covered. Peacock. Watch for free. Upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Listening to today's episode. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Analyzing Anfield. As we approach uh, what is going to be the England announcements for the Euros, uh, this is usually a Liverpool podcast. We're going to keep it Liverpool themed. I'm joined as ever by David Hughes. Dave. Are we getting on? Yeah, very good. Thank you, mate. Very good indeed. Yeah, we're just going to talk about what has been a contentious topic for months, and that is Centre Grandel Arnold, really. We're going to delve into, you know, his game a little bit. It's going to be a shorter episode, of course, with it being a special. And we're just going to talk about maybe why England, maybe there's a few doubts there, you know, why he's driving at Liverpool and he's deemed to be not so useful for England, how Gareth Southgate's maybe should use him, how he shouldn't use him. All that sort of stuff, really. Just a general, I suppose, a, a talking sense episode, Dave. Mm. Um, he, he has certainly been a, a player to split opinion when it comes to the England uh, call-up, at least. Uh, have you got any general thoughts on, on him being left out, first of all, before we get truly into him? And obviously, he's been announced in the, in the provisional squad, but when he got excluded a few months back... You know, were you surprised? I was surprised. Um, I look, I have to, I have to say, hand on, hand on heart, though, uh, I do believe he, he wasn't in his best form at that period of the campaign. Um, so you know, I, I could understand the reasoning behind it. Uh, that being said, it didn't feel like he'd been poor enough to be left out the side. Like for me, he feels like one of the you know, one of the key foundations. You, you have maybe a core group of internationals for England that should be in there. 
uh, barring anything too severe, you know, should be in there for every selection, uh, irrespective of the not at the top of the game. Uh, and I, I would have included him there. You know, I would have put him in there with the, with the likes of Harry Kane and you know maybe Harry Maguire, those type of players. Uh, so yeah, I was a little bit surprised. I wasn't sure maybe the fact that he wasn't available for the uh, the selections uh, six months earlier. Maybe that would have, that was a factor, and it was easier to leave him out. But it was certainly a shock. I think for me. Although it was a, a bit of a surprise, I think it's it's been insistent since thinking about it though, because uh, obviously Southgate used the, the fact that we've got plenty of right backs and uh, it since hasn't been in his best form and stuff like that. But I also think he he Southgate's almost saw there's a bit of an opportunity to to leave him out because I don't think Trent has played particularly great for England um, compared to Liverpool at least. And I don't think he's been as valued by Southgate compared to a player like uh, compared to a manager like Klopp. So I think although there was underlying reasons maybe behind Trent getting dropped, I do think Southgate was almost keen to do it. It was an opportunity whereby he could have done it, and I think he's, he's he obviously did it caused uproar and stuff. But just getting into Trent's game, then you know when it comes to what he's good at. The absolute basics when it comes to the tactical approach of your team, it's it's supposed to, in, in essence, get the best out of your players. It's supposed to shine a spotlight on what they're good at and hopefully mask what they're bad at. So in terms of Trent, just the absolute basics. What would you say he's good at? Because I think he, I think there's kind of four boxes, really four main boxes where you can say he's above average. He's better than the average fullback, certainly. And the average player in most cases when it comes to these these areas. Mm. I think the obvious one is he's an, an excellent creative asset. Uh in some ways maybe even unraveled compared to others in that position. Now look at I, I appreciate there's a lot of good threatening wing backs in the Premier League. Uh, you know, there's there's one on the opposite flank in Robertson. But I think if you if you look at the kind of the way in which a lot of wing backs traditionally attack or provide that offensive threat, it's it's regularly with those overlapping runs, uh, you know, kind of crosses from the byline. A, a blueprint of, of Trent is a little bit different, isn't it? He, he, a lot of us, he, he can do all that, you know. We've seen that as well, but some of it is most penetrating kind of. Uh, deliveries into the box tends to be a little bit deeper you know, in those kind of half space areas and the, I'd say the 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 more impressive from a technical point of view you know the width that he gets on it he, you can tell he just has, has that, that extra kind of technical ability compared to other other wing backs across the division uh, and then that brings you brings you on to something that he's, re- that he's really good at and that's being a you know phenomenal uh, passer of the ball, you know he's got such a an effective and varied passing artillery that um, it makes him basically a, a threat on not only on the right side of the pitch but also in terms of switching it over to the opposite flank. And if you think of what Liverpool face week in week out on a regular basis, um, you know quite often you need to have that. Um, switch of play capacity to to off you know overcome these teams that sit so 
so deep. So they they they're two main things for me, and that's not even touching on anything else. You know, any sort of defensive aspects or anything he brings to the side. No, I agree. I think it, you know when, when you look at his game, I think ideally you want him to be in a role where he's doing he, he's doing ball progression. I think is is one of his key strengths. Just moving you from A to B, moving you up the field. He's really, really good at that. Chance creation, which, you know, you touched on in terms of his, his creativity and stuff. He's just, he's right up there with the best when it comes to creating chances for his teammates to score. Switching the play, which you've just mentioned, and crossing. I think th- those are probably the four departments for me where he's, he's w- way above average in terms of his quality. Um, you know, if you, if you look at Europe's top five leagues this season, for example, so key passes, obviously it's a few blind spots to the metric, but key passes just, you know, a, a pass that directly leads to a shot. So obviously it includes set pieces, which maybe isn't ideal, maybe you want some open play in there, but in terms of those key passes, Trent ranks 15th in, in Europe's top five leagues this season. And for a bit of perspective, the only defender he's behind is Philip Kostic at Frankfurt. And I'm pretty sure he plays extremely offensively. I, th- I think he used to be a, a winger, Kostic. So I haven't caught much of Frankfurt this season, but by looking at that, you can kind of say Trent's been the most creative, in essence, of of, of all the fullbacks in Europe's top five leagues this season. Just behind him is Luke Shaw, uh, who's been, you know, got voted Manchester United's player of the year and stuff. And then when it comes to what else I mentioned in terms of his, his ball progression, so, progressive passes, top of the league, top of Europe, top five league, sorry, for the season, uh, Lionel Messi, shock. And then in second, funnily enough, former Liverpool man, Luis Alberto, uh, who's another, I suppose, attacking midfielder. And then you've got Trent. So, that's kind of what you want him doing. And that's, that's thankfully, what Jürgen Klopp has got him doing at Liverpool. You know, there's... there's Underlying reasons why he thrives at Liverpool to do with the, the details of the system, which, you know, I'll let Dave go into next. But in terms of why he thrives at Liverpool, it's it's largely because Klopp provides him with a platform to essentially do those things, basically. Mm, yeah, yeah, spot on. Um, you know, for the bulk, if you think of the, the bulk of um, Trent's time at the club so far, since he's come through uh, the senior setup. Um, Liverpool have been quite untraditional in a way that they've been less focused on having you know creative profiles through the middle of the pitch, you know, in the midfield, which, as we've said many a time on this show, is has uh, always been a little bit more industrious. You know, you've had players like Henderson, you know, Milner, Wijnaldum, these these type of Fabinho who really good at breaking up play, uh, recycling the ball. Um, often play kind of self-sacrificing and what that means is you know the wing-back areas for Liverpool have become th- those real kind of um, creative forces I guess um, you know, I've been, I've, a lot of it's been centred around building down in those spaces um, and the ability to switch the play means that you know we can go from either flank if you know if one, if one side becomes crowded and switch it over to the other uh, and you've just got two really good creative assets and the reason I say it's quite unique is that if you think of if you think of the you know other other rivals of Liverpool in the Premier League, you think of uh, Manchester United. You know they've got 
Bruno Fernandez through the middle there, kind of key creative spark. You know, got Paul Pogba in there as well. Manchester City, Kevin De Bruyne. You know, a, a lot of a lot of the creative threats, although they have threats on in the wing back areas through the likes of you know Shaw, Walker, whoever. Um, it, it still almost funnels a lot to going through the middle uh, with Liverpool to the police opposite, and obviously that's perfect for Trent because he sees a lot of the ball. He's given a lot of uh, attacking and creative freedom. You know that those those stats now nah, made me laugh early in the year where people kept it, it become a bit of a a theme, didn't it, for a few weeks where it, it, everyone was kind of counting how many times Trent lost possession of the ball. Um, yeah. But you know the irony is that he's given that freedom to take more chances, isn't he? Um, and therefore he is going to turn over the ball more. But that doesn't mean that he's he's suddenly a really bad player. Um, so yeah, Liverpool's just been created this perfect platform platform for him to produce his best work. Uh, probably better than if he was at you know another club where they've got these key creative profiles through the middle of the pitch. A funny little aspect, actually, on top of what you've just mentioned there regarding this tendency to lose the ball, is out of his past four seasons at Liverpool in the Premier League, he's completed his highest completion rate is this season. Um, he completed this season on average 75.3% of his passes. Last season, when Liverpool won the league, it was under 72%. Uh, around 74% the year before and around 73% the year before that. So roughly, you know, when Trent is on the ball and he's making passes, he's kind of losing the ball over 25% of the time, a lot of the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's that that's kind of... It depends on the way you look at it. It, it, it could be deemed as a weakness. It, but for me, it, I think it offers an insight into his role. And I think, you know, he's spot on when it comes to what he's doing at Liverpool. I think, you know, the midfielders that have been at the club... Obviously, Naby Keita was brought in, but I think he he hasn't been able to stake a, a regular spot, basically. And the, the midfielders clubs had to field has kind of almost forced that progression onto Trent's shoulders and onto Robertson's shoulders. Um, so the system just kind of works. The system's kind of balanced. And then when it comes to the final third, Trent's able to take all these kind of risks and he's able to lose the ball this often because the midfielders club has being fielding are just so capable of regaining the ball, recovering the ball, and then just starting again. You know, you think of Fabinho, Wijnaldum, Henderson, how keen they are to just to counter press, to restart another wave of attacks. You know, that, that prevents Trent with the platforms to thrive. And I think, you know, those those key areas that I've just mentioned above, in terms of, you know, ball progression, chance creation, switching the play, crossing. He's he's allowed to do all of those things from from right back, you know, the right back position, right back role, whatever you want to call it, presents him with a platform to do those things. It doesn't really negate any of them, um, and it's kind of where he, in my opinion, needs to play for England. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. When it comes to England, Dave. Obviously, Southgate receives a lot of stick from the Liverpool fan base. Um, he gets talked about as, you know, tactically naive and stuff like that. But I actually, I actually like the way he's thinking with it in a way because I, I was sick of seeing, you know, years back trying to 
play Scholes and Gerrard and Lampard in the same system and alongside two strikers and it was just frustrating. So I think I actually think Southgate's are playing tactical balance maybe more, more than a lot of England managers I've seen in the past. Mm. Um, and I can see why looking at Trent, he's kind of deemed to be. I suppose the best way you could label him is he's quite an unconventional fit, isn't he? He's a bit of an unconventional tactical fit, and I think from an England perspective, that might not be what what Southgate is after, really. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, you know, we just touched on, you know, uh, just touched on earlier uh, Liverpool's Premier League rivals and the players they kind of have in those central or attacking positions. Uh, you know, your Bruno Fernandes, Paul Pogba's, Kevin De Bruyne's stuff like that, players like that. Um, and I said that he may Trent may not have thrived as much as he has at Liverpool if he was at one of those clubs. And, you know, England's the prime example. You you touched on it at the top of the show where he, he's, he's not always felt like he's been a top performer at international level. Now, I don't remember him having a... I don't remember watching him in an England game and being blown away. That's not to say he's played particularly poorly either, but it's just a different level of performance for England compared to what he does at the clubs, at club level. Um and then, obviously, you look at the, the squad Southgate has. You know, you think of the creative type they've got in there. Phil Foden, you know, Jack Grealish, Mason Mount. Players like that who are, you know, more central type players, or more creative players in between those lines. And then if you think of, the, if you think of playing them and then having Trent in there as well and, and trying to see the best version of them, you can see why there does seem to be a little bit of an unbalance there. So then, what you're then looking at is, do you pl- have Trent playing a little bit more of a re- kind of conservative version of himself? You know, more like a traditional right back. And we've said before, you know, built both really big fans of him goes goes without saying. But if he didn't have everything that he has in terms of his creative capacity, technical ability, you know, passing range. You know, if you were just relying solely on his ability as a right back, you know, uh, specifically say defensively, is he a phenomenal talent? Uh, I think it's fair to say probably not. And uh, not a bad defender. I think what what's getting blared, the lines are getting blared a little bit between being a kind of, you know, Premier League level right back standard defender and being suddenly this horrendous player who, who can't defend for his life. That's too far. He isn't that, but. You know, when you strip away all these kind of talents that he does have and just judge him as a as a box standard right back playing a box standard right back's role, you know, is he is he is he better than a than a Reese James or a I don't know, Trippier? I, I haven't watched a lot of Trippier at Atletico, so I don't know if he's improved since the Spurs days. Apparently you know he has, he's been a top performer, but you know, on that basis if he's just looking at it like that, from the, this is from the eyes of Southgate, if that's how he's looking at it, then maybe he's thinking, well, you know, to play this more traditional right-back role, I might be better going with one of the other candidates than, than Trent. No, I think you're spot on. You know, I agree with everything you've just said there, really. I think if, you, if you'd if you never seen Trent and you was to watch him for the first time and you could only see him without the ball, if you could only watch Trent in defence, really, I think you'd probably deem him as as bang average, 
really you, you wouldn't think he was a special talent you wouldn't think he had anything unique to his game you, you see all of that when he's on the ball that, that that's that's Trent's game really and as you just said mm. you know England could field in the same team Grealish Foden Mount even Kane Kane offers plenty of ball progression nowadays yeah, so okay. mm. you know in terms of Trent's usual qualities they just they, they maybe get a little bit stifled at England level um, because of the, the teammates he's surrounded by and I suppose the emphasis the spotlight is then placed on Southgate you know do, do you want to Give Trent a dominant role in, or or not? You know, do you want to give an unconventional role to Trent, or do you want to stay more conventional? Because the the perks of those, you know, Grealish, Foden, Mount, they offer Trent type qualities in conventional ways. So you can have a bit of a normal. You know, I keep coming back to the word conventional, an orthodox mm. system. If if you if you feel those plays compared to so you you could field Grealish Foden Mount and you could field Kyle Walker maybe. Um and the system would kind of play out how, how a traditional system would have, you know, sort of thing. So I, I do see why he's kind of deemed to be a, a little bit of an odd tactical fit. Um having said that, I do think this team gets coined all the time really uh, but I do think he's he's kind of in the gener- generational mould I don't think you see many right backs able to to impact the game like Trent does and someone said I can't remember a punt said recently on a game he's probably the only one of the only right backs in Europe really who who can win you a game on his own um, and there's, there's not many right backs out there that can do that so obviously me being a Liverpool fan I would be inclined to say to Southgate you know you need to be a bit more inclined to give Trent the keys to the team, basically. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can I can also see why he's a little bit reluctant to do that, given the, the traditional attackers he's got at his disposal. Um, but I think anyway, I think Southgate will pick him in the squad. I'm not sure he will start every game, specifically the first game. I think it's quite tough. England have got maybe is it Croatia or someone like that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not too sure. Yeah. But in terms, in terms of how we should be used, Dave, you know, roles. You know, Southgate's talked about him as a potential midfielder and stuff like this. I think there's, if if we're being really varied with it, I think there's there's five possible roles Trent could probably um, take up. Basically, I think you've got right back, you've got right wing back in a three. You've got, I think. Um, left of a three as a right-sided centre-back I think is an incessant shock that no one's mentioned you've got right-sided midfield in a three you've got a double six as one of the sixes and you've got as a right-winger I think those are your options for Trent if you're being really elaborate about it you know if you want to go across all kinds of different positions but I think if you look at them I, I do think a lot of them have downsides apart from Right back, really. I think if you look back at the start of the show, when we were talking about what Trent is good at, I think he's he the only role, in my opinion, where he's allowed to do all of his good things is right back for me, and possibly um, right side of a three. I think other than that, every role would kind of stifle some form of his game for me. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um... I think that's the, that, that's the, the main issue. 
it's also a big gamble because, you know, uh, I think trying him out in one of those other positions, the problem is for Southgate, he's under so much scrutiny, isn't he? And I think some of what we're saying, you know, about giving him, uh, giving them the keys, so to speak, letting them be that, you know, that the main man, the, the the kind of focal point, the one that everything got the play that all the the play goes through almost. I think the issue is you'd have to build a team around him. You'd probably have to leave out a lot of these other really uh, valued attacking talents. So you you make some Mount Foden's those type of players, Grealish's. Would they have to start on the bench? If you don't get the results you're looking for. You know, the, the scrutiny from the media will be all about his decision to have these players as disposable as disposal and not use them. Um, and, and, and instead, you know, around Trent, and it, it doesn't get the positive results. It could do, but I'm just trying to look at it from his point of view. So then I think with, with that in mind, that probably he'd have similar fears about trying them out somewhere else. So it would be right back. But then again, as for everything we've just said, would he will he play him there? You know, maybe the right wing back might work with the back the back three, but I can I can understand this headache a little bit. So does it make sense to just use him, use him, uh, use him in the best possible way, give him all the tools he needs to to go and impact the team and win win football matches for you? But obviously, he's probably looking Southgate's probably looking at it from wider point of view and thinking, you know, it's a gamble. I've got a really good squad there. Without him, you know, I could put together a really good solid eleven without him in the team. Uh, I'm probably good enough to go and compete as well. So, is that the the safer option? Maybe it is. Yeah, the thing is as well, Harry Maguire is kind of you know battling for his fitness, and if if Maguire's not fit, Southgate probably doesn't play a back four, which means there's no right back slot. Which that would mean he's either playing as a right wing back or a right sided centre back. Um, now he's been used as a right wing back by Southgate, and I think I can see why he's done that because you know typically it looks as though if you think of a typical wing back, he's being allowed to have his def- defensive flaws a little bit masked because he's getting covered and he's playing a bit more offensively, and um, you know he can just go and attack as normal basically. Mm-hmm. But I think what that has done in the past when he's played wing back for for England. He's seen the ball less, and he's it's it's almost placed a spotlight on his physicality in terms of running up and down the flank relentlessly, which he's kind of not one of them. Rob Andy Robertson's more more in that mould. Kyle Walker is probably more in that mould. Um, and I think that's why you know I think it'd be interesting to play Trent as a right sided centre back in a three, because at least then. You, you wouldn't get the chance of creation because you wouldn't be anywhere near the final third, really, but at least you'd get the, the progression. You know, you'd get the, mm. the, the balls through the lines, the balls into the final third and that sort of stuff. So I think that would be an interesting one to try, but then to try it in a major tournament would be a bit of a, a big risk. Um, if he was to play as a right winger, um, you maybe get more of the chance of creation, but I think you get less progression then. You get less of the, the ball progression because he's, He's playing as a winger, so it's just it's probably going to happen a bit less. So I think for me, you're getting the best out of him either as a right back, which it remains to be seen whether England will play that's a system that uses a right back, or as a number eight. Um, 
and again p- playing them as a number eight for the first time in a major tournament, it is just a risk that Southgate could probably do without. Mm-hmm. Um, so without wanting to, without look wanting to look like I'm supporting Southgate's decision or anything like that, I, I think this is you know I just wanted to provide a bit of context around the decision from I spoke with analyzing Anfield perspective as to why it's despite him being an unbelievable player. It's uh, there's more to it, really, isn't he? Yeah, I think he. You have to say, I think if he wasn't English, he'd benefit so much more. You'd probably see a much better version of him if he was, say, and I mean no disrespect to any other. I'm very conscious of what nation I'm going to name here because I don't want to offend anyone. But um, yeah, get on well with the Scottish, so I'll, I'll say Scotland. Um, you know, <laughs> say Scotland do. You know, do have some decent players, but. I think if if he was say Scottish, there'd be a, more of a window of opportunity for the side to be built around him, and probably see him produce his best stuff. Whereas England have just got so many really good up and coming talents, you know, really top top players. You know, Mounts, Foden's, Grealish's, the top Premier League players, you know, in great form. You've got too many of them. I think not to not to use them. Whereas I think if it was playing for another nation, he'd probably have a better opportunity having the team built around him and in turn produces club form on on international uh, on international level. Yeah, just a, just a bit on what you've just said there in terms of the players you've just listed. You know, these aren't just good players; these are these are extreme. These are top talents. You know, you're talking about Mount Grealish, Foden. So, in terms of what I listed before, when I said Trent is where he is in Europe for key passes, you know, creating chances for his teammates. In the Premier League only, Trent is sixth. Um and he's the top he's the top defender in sixth place. Um but in second in the league, you've got Mason Mount. And third in the league, you've got Jack Grealish, who missed about two months. And Gre- most of Grealish's as well come through open play. Mm. I think Mount benefits from a few set pieces. Foden is a bit further down. But I don't think he's played the minutes. I think Foden's played a, quite a bit less. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's going to be interesting to see what Southgate does. I do think he'll select him in the squad. But whether Trent plays anywhere near such a prominent role as he does at Anfield remains to be seen. Um, and if that's not the case, providing Southgate fields enough creative spark to get England through to the business end of the tournament. I, I'll do my best to understand it, really, even though it's a, it's a tough one to take. Because in my opinion, he's he's an absolute top talent, and he's a Liverpool Academy product, probably the best one since since Steven Gerrard, really. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it works out, Dave. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's one to keep an eye on, but um, I think it's, the, the conversation we've just had definitely contextualised it all, in my opinion, uh, which sounds very biased, but I just think it's. I look around, I don't see people having that conversation. It seems to be very black and white, but I think in this particular scenario, there's, there's a grey area, um, and that's why it's probably been such a headache for for Southgate, but also difficult for many Liverpool fans to to understand how you could leave someone so good out. Yeah, I mean, I can't say this enough, just before we round up, how much an England squad is not just a selection of the country's best players. It's... it's um... You have to form a squad, and even deeper in that squad, you have to form a first eleven that is functional. Um, 
and it won't be functional if you if you just feel the gang of attackers every, every position. It'll be a bit mental. So, you know, going into this tournament, especially considering that a lot of these players haven't played together or don't play together on a regular basis, you know, you need balance there. And hopefully Southgate will find a way to strike it and hopefully he'll find a way to do it with strength on the field. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll round up there. Um, little half an hour talk, talking strength. And, you know, we'll be back next week to talk about Liverpool transfers. Just as we're recording, by the way, on the Friday, Ibrahima Kanate has been announced. So that bodes well for next week, Dave, when we start mm. getting into the players that we think Liverpool should sign, considering they've signed someone already. But, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us anyway, mate. Thank you, mate. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, and be sure to tune in next week. Cheers. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel. In your car, at work, at home, on your smartphone. Do you want to have 10 times your fun during the NBA playoffs? It's easy, and it all starts with prize picks. Simply pick two or more players and decide if they'll go over or under their stat projection. Will LeBron score 22 points and Harden get eight assists? That's all you have to do. Easy. And the more players you pick, the more you can win, up to 10 times your money. Download the Prize Picks app today and get up to a $100 deposit bonus with promo code PLAYOFFS. Hurry before our special deposit bonus offer expires. Play Prize Picks today. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID 19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel. I want to talk to you about are we headed into a bear market or are we in a cooling down phase of the bull market? In addition, we have some next level FUD coming out of China talking about we're all going to die. Bitcoin is going to kill us all. (laughs) And I want to recap the three billionaires who are bullish on crypto within the past two weeks. We heard from them and why that's significant. In addition, President Biden's new budget approval. Uh, proposal has crypto regulations and reporting requirements in it. I'm going to talk about why that's bullish at the current time that we find ourselves in and what's going to be coming ahead. And uh, some people may think that's bearish, but I don't think so. And I'll explain why. Now, before I get into it, please go ahead and hit that thumbs up button, leave a comment below and hit the subscribe button if you're new here. It helps support the channel and it doesn't cost you anything. Guys, Okay, coin, great exchange, the lowest fees around. Why pay extra fees? Keep your money. Use it towards your crypto, right? Don't pay r- ridiculous uh, fees. Use OKCoin okay to buy your crypto. Link in the description. Sign up. And I will be interviewing Fred Teal, who's the CEO at Marathon Digital Holdings. Who's Marathon Digital Holdings? Holdings, They're North American Bitcoin miner. So you don't want to miss this interview. I'm going to be interviewing him soon. We're going to talk about all things uh, related to Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, such as environmental impact. What's he hearing from the government? Uh, what does he think about Elon's stance? 
all those things. So you don't want to miss it. You're, you're going to hear from the guy who's, you know, an actual miner, not just people who are just randomly tweeting. So that's, this is why I tried to bring you guys these exclusive interviews. Um, in addition, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. It is free weekly newsletter. Be sure to sign up link in the description. So not much happening with the market. Bitcoin over $36,000. We are in a consolidation phase, as you can see here on the weekly chart. Huge, 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 huge red candles, right? That's okay. That's okay. We're going to consolidate. We're going to move sideways. And then Bitcoin's going to break out and go upwards. I don't believe we are headed into a bear market. There are some people who are saying that. You know, if I look at the 2017 chart, notice these red candles on the way up, right? And I think we're somewhere here as if you were to, you know, align these charts respectfully in, in the whole timeline of the bull run. Uh, you see this huge red candle here after uh, some significant gains. And I think that's where we're at. I don't think this is some sort of, uh, oh no, like 2019, we're going into, uh, you know, a bear market because the macro level charts, such as one, the stock to flow model indicates we're still on track and Bitcoin is still above the 200 week moving average. Now, historically, you'll see in the bull runs, Bitcoin has held above the 200-week moving average. Now, in the bear market, it goes below or at least touches it, right? Um, So you can see here in the respective bear markets how it it touched or went below. So right now, we're still above. Now, I like to give you guys both sides of the coin, so to speak. If we do go below, then yes, okay, we we need to adjust our, our expectations here because, look, no one can predict the future, but we can at least use data and trends and historical patterns to uh, try to figure out, well, where are we at, what may be coming. This is all obviously, uh, you know, probability, right? There is no one who can 100% say with certainty, hey, this is exactly what's going to happen obviously, right? So I want to make sure you guys understand that. But at least we can get as close as possible by using data. And that's why I point you guys to these macro level charts. So plan B stock to flow model, uh, he's saying here 60k is not the top, and that we still have ways to go. In addition, Dan Moorhead, macro investor at at Pantera Capital, who I've interviewed on my channel, he's looking at $115,000 Bitcoin price by August. Well, let's take a look at his historical chart here going back to May of last year or April, I should say. And you can see the growth and price predictions he had. And you can see some of them are off, right? (laughs) They're off. Some of them were like 15 weeks uh, uh, behind, um, 13 weeks behind. And then when it came to January, we were one week ahead. Uh, February 15th, we were one week ahead. In March, we were three weeks ahead. So... I think we did get ahead of ourselves a little bit here, meaning Bitcoin's price rallied faster than uh, the historical charts and and playing out of volume and price and so on and so forth. So I think this correction is healthy. I think this is a good consolidation. Maybe the support level we're looking at is 30 or 32,000. And we'll see where uh, Bitcoin bounces off of and holds, right? Now, I always like to make sure I give you guys the flip side. We could go lower. Bitcoin could go down to 25, to maybe 20, right? Let's see what happens. Now, is that likely? I don't think so, but it, it's, a, it's a possibility, right? We got to be sure we're prepared for all scenarios, even as unlikely as it may be. 
So using the data, looking at the, the halving cycle, the four-year halving cycle, the stock-to-flow model, and even macro-level charts and things and, and price uh, models like Dan Moorhead's, we see that we're still on track. There's going to be corrections along the way, and we have to be patient. Uh, patient. Patient is, patience is the key here, guys. And I know for new investors in the crypto market, this could be hard to stomach. It is a roller coaster ride, as I've said uh, many of times on this channel for years, right? But patience is the key. Um, we saw like the same, you know, I always make the analogy of the pendulum. This pendulum that swings very high also can take its very low uh, back down very quickly, but that's okay. Uh, because there are macro level factors that are feeding the adoption of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Um, obviously, we see a paradigm shift taking place. And with fiat currencies, like the Fed balance sheet is just growing at a record breaking pace and the governments keep printing money. And this is just one avenue or use case. Now, it's primarily for Bitcoin. Bitcoin moves the market. Bitcoin really ushers in more money into the market and into altcoins. Let's keep it real, right? Anyone who li who tells you that is not the case is lying to you. At this point, we have not decoupled from Bitcoin. Bitcoin moves the market up and down. That is the fact, Jack. That is how things play out. So um, the main use case here is the record-breaking inflation that's coming, the money printing, and companies and billionaire investors, uh, as uh, I mentioned in my previous videos, are looking at this and like, okay, how do we preserve the cash balance that we have, the purchasing power? Well, we need to put it in a store of value. Historically, that's been gold, or you, they try to throw it into the stock market or other assets, but Bitcoin and crypto with its hard cap money and as Paul Tudor Jones said, the fastest horse in the race when comparing it with Bitcoin, when comparing it to gold and other assets, right? That's why Paul Tudor Jones wrote his letter last year, took a position, and then we saw Stan Druckenmiller, Bill Miller, and all these guys jump in and other hedge firms, hedge funds and investment firms. And of course, this past week, the biggest capitulation I think that we've seen in a while, Ray Dalio, billionaire. He said, I have some Bitcoin. And the guy was a skeptic before. He was trashing it before. Uh, and and we're just seeing him and many others are jumping in. And he owns the world's largest um, hedge fund. So this is huge. This is significant. Very bullish. And he's not buying to lose money, right? He's looking to make a profit, of course, right? Just like me and you, we're looking to make money here. And Carl, I can this past week, he said... Uh, he's interested in crypto. He said it's here to stay. And he said if they were to take a position, and I think they already did, by the way. Thus, you know, read between the lines here. These guys don't go out and put a narrative unless they know what's, um, you know, they, they're positioned to make money. I think by now we should all know that, right? And the smoke and mirrors moves that, that many of them play. But he would say, he said, look, we're not going to put a few pennies into this, right? We're going to put billions, $1.5 billion. Um, or at least a billion from his comments. And even uh, Dave Rubenstein or David Rubenstein, he said cryptocurrencies are here to stay. And this is all within the past two weeks, guys. So three billionaires, uh, as many of who have been skeptics, have capitulated and they, I believe, have already taken a position. Many of them may not come out and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, there were, I have a few. None. They probably have a lot. They've already taken their position and they're probably buying the dip now. So, this is very bullish news, and these statements are green lights, green flags for other investment firms and millionaires and billionaires. 
So we're going to see more money get ushered into the market. Now, check this out. Biden's 2020 budget includes new crypto reporting proposals. Now, a couple of things. Some people may see this and be like, oh, my God, the president and this and that. Guess what? He's not putting out an executive order or a bill here to kill cryptocurrencies. Rather, to regulate it just like the traditional asset classes, the financial market. What have I said for years, guys? They're going to position this asset class the same way the stocks and other assets in the stock market is, right? Full regulation. They're going to get their tax money and you have to report to them and blah, blah, blah. But they know what's happening. They, they see the likes of Goldman Sachs and these guys, Ray Dalio, jumping in. So they're not going to ban it. The big money's here. And if you understand how money and politics work in the United States, campaign donations, lobbying, the lobbying by crypto firms has been increasing. They, they need to do more, in, in my opinion. But you, you, this thing is here to stay, is my point, right? The toothpaste is out of the tube. The genie is out of the bottle. The train has left the station. So I don't know how many other idioms I can use, but I hope you guys see what's happening here. This is not, you know, 2017 or pre-2017 where, you know, it's kind of a shaky ground. Okay, they may ban it. They may do this. We are way past that. Now it's up to how they want to regulate it, how, how they want to report on it, how they want to collect their tax revenue and all that, and the big money setting up shop. So proposed cryptocurrency regulations are in the first budget released by Joe Biden's White House. So once again, not a ban, but an infrastructure for the growth and maturation of the asset class. In order for it to go further, um, unfortunately, I hate taxes, but unfortunately, we have to pay taxes. And and, and they're, they're not going to let this Bitcoin go to $100,000 plus and people are cashing out and this is happening and companies are using it without having the infrastructure, right? So the budget published Friday, the first from the Biden administration, includes two proposals that would give the Treasury Department additional requirements around what type of information in financial institutions must report to the Internal Revenue Service, IRS, or other Treasury sub-departments. So it's just reporting. If you hated something, you wanted to kill it, and you wanted to stop it, you wouldn't be setting up infrastructure to collect reports on it, right? You know what I mean? Like, so that companies and people can do this. So pretty clear, they're not going to ban Bitcoin or crypto. It's here to stay. They're going to, you know, you're going to hear the FUD and and all those things um, coming out of the market, but it's here to stay. Now, check this out, though. In China... (laughs) This is this is crazy. This guy in China he says on TV that Bitcoin's going to kill us all. Let, let me play the clip for you. Hey, Jujang, can, can you give me the worst scenario? What kind of a systemic shock it will give to the current financial system is if Bitcoin is widely used uh, in China or the rest of the world? Well, if Bitcoin will become the uh, ultimate type of form of the currency then adopted by human society. I can I can tell exactly what's going to happen as the worst scenario or yeah. the most scenario. We're all going to die. <laughs> this guy said, if Bitcoin's adopted by society and everybody's using it, we're all going to die. Oh my gosh. This is next level FUD, man. You know, sometimes when you think you've heard it all, they, they surprise you, man. And... <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I feel sorry for the noobs who believe this and hear this, and they're like, "Oh my God, Bitcoin's going to kill us all." Uh, at least, you know, I wanted to end it on a laugh, there, guys. Anyway, what do you guys think about this news? Um, I'm still bullish. 
Uh, we are not heading into a bear market, in my opinion. Uh, look, if I'm wrong, I will say I am wrong, but I'm talking probabilities here, right? Not certainties. So yes, I cannot say with 100% certainty that, okay, we're not heading to a bear market. But I can say with maybe a 90% uh, certainty, if you want to put it that way, that the probability of a, we are still in a bear, uh, excuse me, a bull market, and, and this is just a cooling off phase, um, it, it's it's high, right? There's a high probability here. So uh, let me know what you guys think. Do you disagree with me? Do you agree with me? Leave your thoughts and comments below. Hit the thumbs up button, share this video, and I'll talk to you all later. Amazon is offering sign-on bonuses up to $1,000, plus get up to $20 an hour for select roles. The best part? We're hiring near you. So start now to take home something greater. New, higher wages with a sign-on bonus, a range of real benefits, and career growth opportunities in a top-rated workplace. So earn more and see how great pay and sign-on bonuses can lead to a greater life for you. Go to Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Peacock is streaming your favorite shows, movies, live sports, breaking news, exclusive originals, and every live WWE pay-per-view. It's The Office, Chrisley Knows Best, and Peacock original shows like Funky Brewster. Peacock, watch for free, upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Tonight, America roaring back, the largest crowd since the pandemic began, 135,000 fans packing into the Indy 500. In the south and west, beaches filled up, long lines at national parks, and the biggest movie opening in theaters in a year and a half. Manhunt, the search for three gunmen who opened fire outside a concert in Miami. Two dead, dozens injured. This is, uh, this is a war at home. Cities across the country bracing for a deadly wave of gun violence this summer. The most far-reaching voting restriction bill yet, now one step closer to becoming law in Texas. Why critics say it makes overturning elections easier. Sticker shock at the meat counter just as grilling season kicks off. Why the price of beef and pork is on the rise. And this Memorial Day weekend, a run to remember. Each step a tribute to those who served and sacrificed. This is NBC Nightly News with Kate Snow. Good evening, I'm Peter Alexander, in tonight for Kate. Without a doubt, it is the clearest sign yet that Americans are returning to their old lives in droves. Watching today's Indy 500, your eyes may have been drawn more to the bleachers than to the track. 135,000 fans, by far the biggest gathering in the U.S. since the pandemic began more than a year ago. National parks like the Grand Canyon also seeing a surge as officials brace for huge summer crowds. And tonight, airports are preparing for a post-holiday rush. With America's rapid reopening, here's Megan Fitzgerald. This Memorial Day, feeling familiar and offering a splash of normal. National parks flooded with visitors. I'm Allison Barber at the Grand Canyon, where visitors from across the country have flocked for a little bit of fresh air and views like this. In Washington, D.C., rolling thunder has returned. 50,000 motorcycles revving through the nation's capital. Feels good. 
And what's the holiday without the beach? Boardwalks packed from Miami to Waikiki. Across the Northeast, a washout. No boating today. High winds and rain forcing folks indoors. The weather's not the best. But it was a record-breaking weekend at the box office. A Quiet Place Part 2 expected to net nearly $60 million. The highest of any film during the pandemic, signaling a Hollywood comeback. But all good things must come to an end. Tomorrow, the nation's airports bracing for what could be the busiest travel day in over a year. It's good to see people are going places, but I wish not so many people were going right now. It was a holiday weekend the nation needed and a reminder that there is an end in sight. And Megan joins us now from Newark Airport. Megan, there's been record air travel already this weekend. Is that a sign of a busy summer ahead? Well, Peter, 5 million people have traveled since Thursday, and that's a record for now. Uh, but all projections here is that it will be a busy summer. So the TSA is hiring. They are planning to bring on an additional 3,000 additional officers by Labor Day. Peter? Megan Fitzgerald in Newark, New Jersey tonight. Megan, thank you. A manhunt is underway this evening for three people that police are calling cold-blooded murderers after a deadly mass shooting outside a concert in Miami overnight. And as Sam Brock reports, the killings are part of a troubling nationwide trend of gun violence that is expected to get worse this summer. Tonight, a Miami crime scene canvassed by investigators as parents forced to face the horror once again of their children reeling from gunshot wounds. He called us frantic, telling us he had been shot, that it hurts, it hurts, and he loves us. I don't even know. Uh, words can't explain how I feel right now, man. At a shopping center in northwest Miami-Dade, police say an SUV waited in a parking lot for at least 30 minutes around midnight with three men leaving the vehicle and then raining gunfire on those outside a banquet hall, injuring 20 and killing two. I think that it was probably targeted on a specific person at that event, and they really didn't care about who was standing around. And as a result, uh, innocent people were shot and lost their lives. Miami-Dade's police director says it's possible 100 rounds were fired as the assailants carried assault-style weapons. The rise in gun violence, putting cities on edge across the country as COVID-19 restrictions continue to lift. In fact, 57 of the biggest cities saw a 36% increase in gun homicides between 2019 and 2020, the biggest jump on record. Gun violence, often worse in the summer. We're at a place to frequency of these shootings, the duration of how long they're lasting in these events. Uh, it should be concerning uh, to all of us as Americans now. Chicago's police superintendent saying the city will commit more resources to combating shootings as summer approaches, shifting police officers' work hours and canceling their vacation days. And in New York, more units will be placed in high crime areas. The fallout from this vicious wave of violence, more families seeing their sense of safety shattered. My son, my only son, my only child, he's not a statistic, he's a graduate. And Sam's at the scene of that shooting in Miami right now. Sam, is there any update on the victim's conditions? Peter, we're learning the number of critically injured is now up to three, which means the death toll could rise to five as police have no idea where the gunmen are right now. Peter? Sam Brock in Miami this evening. Sam, thank you. Tonight, Texas lawmakers are expected to pass one of the nation's strictest and most controversial voting bills. Critics, including President Biden, say it's un-American and would disenfranchise people of color. Kelly O'Donnell reports. 
Before dawn today, a 6 a.m. vote that could change elections for millions of Texans. Motion is adopted. Texas Republicans one step closer to sweeping new restrictions, despite the reality that many Texas officials concede their state's 2020 elections were secure. This may be more of an optics issue, restoring confidence with, with the American people. And in my state, who actually do believe uh, there was tremendous fraud. But Democrats insist tighter rules will suppress the vote in black and brown communities. Houston Democrat Boris Miles. Where I'm from, where I'm elected to be a voice in this chamber, they do call and refer to it as Jim Crow 2.0. Some of the proposed changes. Ends drive-through and 24-hour voting. Adds proof of identity requirements for absentee voting. And makes it easier for a judge to overturn election results, even without proof that fraud affected the outcome. If passed by the House by midnight, the Texas governor says he will make it law. President Biden in Delaware this weekend called the Texas bill un-American. Today, the Biden family went to church for the sixth anniversary of Bo Biden's death from brain cancer. Marking his first Memorial Day as commander-in-chief, the president tied the sacrifice of America's fallen to values he will defend, meeting the Russian president next month. I'll be meeting with President Putin in a couple weeks in Geneva, making it clear that we will not, we will not stand by and let him abuse those rights. And Kelly's traveling with the president in Delaware tonight. Kelly, does the president have any plans to counter these new voting laws? Peter, we've seen a wave of states pass more restrictive voting laws like Florida and Georgia. So President Biden is calling on Congress to send to his desk two measures that would provide national standards for voter access to ballots and deliver an updated Voting Rights Act. Peter? Kelly O'Donnell with the president in Wilmington, Delaware tonight. Kelly, thank you. And we have some breaking news from overseas. Benjamin Netanyahu's run as the longest serving Israeli prime minister may be coming to an end. A right wing leader tonight announced that he would work with other opposition parties from across the political spectrum there to form a coalition that would likely force Netanyahu from office after serving in that post for the last 12 years. And coming up here, sticker shock at the supermarket, why the price of beef and pork is climbing. And just in time for Americans to light up those barbecues, the price of beef and pork is skyrocketing. And it's partly the pandemic to blame. As we kick off this grilling season, Blaine Alexander on how high those prices may go. This holiday weekend, as you prepare to fire up the grill, know that your Memorial Day barbecue may cost you more. Grocery prices are up across the board from 2020, but meat is seeing an especially sharp rise. According to the USDA, beef prices are up almost 10% over last year. Bacon now averaging 6.22 per pound, up from 5.52, and steak 6.64, almost a dollar more than in 2020. Costco is reporting a 20% spike in meat prices over the past month. Will people notice this when they go to the grocery store? I think they'll notice. It's like gasoline prices. People tend to notice what their favorite cut of beef costs. Experts point to a snowball effect set in motion by the pandemic, from supply chain shortages on farms to fewer workers in meat plants, even a shortage of truck drivers to move meat across the country. Consumer demand is really, really strong as the economy opens back up and folks go back to restaurants and travel and hotels. All of it leaving butchers like Anthony Barraconi in a tough spot. 
We have to raise prices every day. Every day a truck comes in, the price is higher. He's been a butcher since he was 14 and says these prices are as high as he's ever seen. Taking the toll not just on him, but his loyal customers. When a customer walks into my store, if they have a, a family of four, it's going to cost them over $100 to feed them. The good news? Experts say prices will level out, but likely not until the fall. Until then... It's grilling season. Go get yourself something good at the store and, and, and send the farmers the signal to produce more. Blaine Alexander, NBC News. And we're back in a moment with the race to save California's beloved giant redwoods as wildfires get worse. And remembering the man whose music made so many sing. You may not recognize his name, but his voice was unmistakable. Tonight, five-time Grammy winner B.J. Thomas has died. Thomas hit number one with Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head in 1970. He had other hits, too, including Hooked on a Feelin'. And he was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame for his pop, country, and gospel songs. B.J. Thomas was 78 years old. Now to the race to save California's most iconic trees. After a year of historic wildfires out west, the state's giant redwoods were among those damaged and destroyed. But there's now a new effort underway to save them by fighting fire with fire. Here's Steve Patterson with the details. In the blink of an eye, California's home to ancient coastal redwoods, looming over a century of memories, was all but wiped off the map. Back in 2020, Big Basin Redwood State Park was ripped apart by the CZU lightning fire. What is the extent of the damage? It's looking like about 97% of the park burned. 97%? Yeah, so pretty much the whole thing. Scientists say the record-setting fires were chiefly driven by climate change. Now they're worried it's threatening the future of the state's most iconic species, like giant sequoias and Joshua trees that don't easily grow back. Thankfully, redwoods aren't so easy to take down. They have very thick and insulative bark, and that prevents them from being killed by the heat of the fire. But while the trees stand strong, the park itself only partially reopening this Memorial Day weekend, the redwoods, though, are still off limits. Every day, a costly blow to the local economy. Big Basin Redwood State Park hosted approximately half a million visitors a year and generated a million dollars worth of revenue per year. The tourism industry has really suffered. Big Basin is by far California's oldest state park, but because of the scope of the devastation here, it will likely never look the same. So the challenge now is with these ancient trees, how do you build this back up and how do you protect it so something like this never happens again? I mean, you could really say it looked like a bomb went off. With the new reality of year-round megafires sprouting on the trunk, Save the Redwood Chief Officer Paul Ringgold is dedicated to reshaping the way we interact with forestry. One of the best ways, he says, is an old adage, fighting fire with fire. Experts say so-called prescribed burns would reduce the fuel that otherwise builds up in underbrush. I think it's essential. But it will take more funding and a fundamental shift in how the public thinks about fire. Will this park ever look and feel the same? I'm afraid it, it won't look the same as we recall. And some of that difference will be in the look and feel of the trees in the forest. And some of it will be in what we imagine this park looks like. Creating a new relationship with fire so our most beloved natural sanctuaries can endure for future generations. Steve Patterson, NBC News, Santa Cruz, California. 
some of the most stunning trees on the planet. Still ahead right here, running to remember how the children of some of our nation's fallen heroes are making sure that their loved ones are never forgotten. On this Memorial Day weekend, there is good news tonight about a unique effort to honor the memory of our fallen heroes by the children they left behind. Here's Katie back. Major Thomas Hernandez. Every week, the young and the brave form a circle. Sergeant Joseph Millard Sr. Honoring service members who made the ultimate sacrifice. A loss suffered before some here could walk. Now, in remembrance, they run. These kids who gave up their parents for our country show up ready to live. Trading tears for sweat, these memorial miles run for the fallen, the fighting, the families of the U.S. military. Where Blue Run to Remember has 60 running groups across the country, like this one outside Seattle, where it began in 2010. It's connecting them to a part of their story of who they are. They're not just survivors, they're military kids. A connection made stronger by military mentors, paired as training partners for an annual 5K race on Memorial Day. I can't imagine trying to keep up with a 14-year-old is easy. No, it's not. Army Captain James Soldner and Joey Millage agree their introduction needed no warm-up. I think we bonded just the second we met each other. They run for Joey's dad, Army Sergeant Joseph Millage, killed in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2007. How often do you think about your dad? I think about him all the time. I think of him encouraging me and just just a little bit more, Joey. Just take one more step. Tomorrow's event historically bittersweet. The race course lined with unforgotten faces. Our daddy. And the much smaller ones forever longing to be near them. Perfect. The irony of this moment is that the very person who each of these kids are running for is the person they want at the finish line. But true victory is won on the way there as grief channels to a goal. No matter how many times you're down, just put one foot in front of the other and you will get there. Every finish, a winded salute. It feels as if I'm reminding the world that my dad has made the ultimate sacrifice and he will not be forgotten. Always proud to run, determined to always remember. Katie Beck, NBC News, DuPont, Washington. Just such an impressive group. And a special thank you this Memorial Day weekend to all those who have served and to the families that have sacrificed. That is NBC Nightly News for this Sunday. I'm Peter Alexander. For all of us here at NBC News, have a good night. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Tonight, holiday weekend washout and the busiest travel day yet. Nearly two million people taking to the skies, tens of millions more crowding the roads. The vicious storms toppling planes, flooding streets, and ruining the long weekend for much of the country. I mean, it's not the Memorial Day weekend we were hoping for. 
where it's heading next. Plus, the airlines now saying no alcohol will be served on board after violence breaks out in the cabin. The new COVID variant just discovered in Asia. Why officials there warn it could spread more quickly. Masks and kids, the new debate. Do children still need to wear them outdoors or even indoors? Deadly crackdown, huge protests in Colombia. Now the military is called in. Dozens have died already. The new law in Texas revealed today that if passed, could make overturning elections easier. The secret wedding ceremony for the leader of the United Kingdom, the first sitting prime minister to marry in 200 years. This is NBC Nightly News with Jose Diaz-Balart. Good evening. This holiday weekend, two forces are colliding. The human desire to get out, travel, and enjoy the kickoff to summer, and Mother Nature. Take a look at this beach from last Memorial Day weekend. Empty, closed due to COVID concerns. Today, beaches across the country are reopening, but many sit empty as a nasty storm system brings record cold to the East Coast. But Americans are on the move, setting a new record when it comes to air travel. We have two reports tonight, and we begin with Blaine Alexander. Tonight, the nation's busiest airport is once again starting to look like it. Yes, I'm really excited. It's like freedom again. Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson is expected to welcome 1.5 million passengers this weekend. When is the last time that we've seen the airport this busy? It was Christmas 2019 when we saw this many people here. It's just a fraction of the full holiday rush. 37 million travelers expected on the roads and the runways. Actually feel good, but scary at the same time. Friday, TSA processed more than 1.9 million passengers, a new pandemic record. The agency now beefing up to meet the demand. So just in this year, we've already hired over 3,100 officers. And between now and the 4th of July, we expect to bring on another 1,000 more. But in some places, the weather is not bringing a warm welcome to summer. Parts of Texas drenched by heavy rain and storms, blowing through a small airport near Waco, leaving planes tossed like toys. In Ohio, a flooded Lake Erie spilled into nearby neighborhoods. And high waves closed part of Chicago's Lakefront Trail. In the Northeast, parts of New York are drenched and dealing with near-record lows, temperatures dipping into the 40s. All of it part of a vicious weather system sweeping through the Midwest and into the Northeast from now through Monday. And Blaine joins us from Atlanta. Blaine, you have some news about a major airline's decision about serving alcohol on board. That's right, Jose. American Airlines is now the latest major carrier to extend its ban on serving alcohol in the main cabin. It joins Southwest Airlines, and it comes as we're seeing more and more cases of passengers behaving badly while in flight. American says that it will maintain that ban until at least mid-September. Jose. Blaine Alexander in Atlanta, thank you. Despite the bad weather in some parts of the country, there's a new feeling of optimism this weekend as more states fully open up and businesses are ready for the rush. Megan Fitzgerald is on the Jersey Shore. It's finally looking a lot like summer, from Myrtle Beach to Virginia Beach. I'm very positive about 2021. To Jacksonville and Miami. 
The holiday festivities are in full swing and anxious tourists are ready for it. I am fully vaccinated, um, so I feel like I'm out here protecting myself. I'm super excited to be around people. Everybody is just like there's an energy now. Everybody's so excited to be out. But perhaps the biggest sign that America is racing back, the Indy 500 getting underway Sunday. 135,000 people expected in the stands, marking the largest gathering since the pandemic began. And America's favorite pastime in full swing. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky stepping outside and into Fenway Park to throw out the first pitch. The stadium opened at full capacity as mask restrictions statewide are lifted. And a return to nightlife on the Jersey Shore Friday night after the governor lifted mask mandates and social distancing requirements. But today... It's not the Memorial Day weekend we were hoping for. Weather forcing people to stay home or hunker down inside. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, it's always disheartening when we don't have great weather for one of the major holiday weekends. Businesses can't seem to catch a break after many struggled through the last 14 months. We're just as prepared as we would be if it wasn't raining. So um, we're just ready for anybody who wants to come out. While it's still slow and steady for some, there's progress. And many business owners say that's all they can hope for. Megan, how important is Memorial Day for these resort towns? Jose, it's critical. These businesses rely heavily upon these large crowds. Uh, take the beach, for example. It's been closed now for the second day in a row. Officials tell us uh, that they charge by the person, so they're losing tens of thousands of dollars a day, and that's just on beach access alone. Jose? Megan Fitzgerald in New Jersey, thank you. Overseas, a new highly contagious COVID variant is being described as very dangerous by Vietnam's top health official. The new variant is a mix of strains first detected in India and Britain. Vietnam is currently banning large gatherings as it deals with a massive surge in COVID cases and only 1% of its 97 million people have been vaccinated. Back in this country, Texas could soon have some of the strictest voting regulations in the nation. Lawmakers today unveiled a bill which would make it tougher to cast ballots and easier to overturn elections. Kelly O'Donnell has details. A new message from President Biden for the Texas legislature weighing broader voting restrictions today. It's wrong and un-American, writes the president. It's part of an assault on our democracy. Today in Austin... Texas Republicans moved a step closer to tightening election rules, including a ban on unsolicited ballot applications and lowering the legal standard for overturning an election outcome. Is there objection? Hearing none, the chair hears none. This push in Texas follows Georgia and Florida, as some Republicans align themselves with Donald Trump's false claims that lax voting rules cost him re-election. Trump's influence also reached Washington this week as Republican senators blocked an independent commission on January 6th. They're afraid of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a, is a, is a bane to our democracy. Unraveling the facts about the assault on the Capitol will have to take a new direction that will rely more on the work of congressional committees. Fortunately, uh, we do have subpoena power. We will be able to get at the truth of what happened on January 6th. Defending his opposition to a separate commission, Republican leader Mitch McConnell says law enforcement is already on the case. 
Justice Department officials say about 440 arrests have been made, with more expected. Hundreds have been charged. Even more arrests are said to be planned. And the attorney general indicates this investigation will remain a top focus. And Kelly is traveling with the president in Wilmington. Back to this Texas law, Kelly, when could it be passed? Well, the Texas lawmakers could finish up their work before the end of this holiday weekend on this bill that could make big changes to a variety of voting rules. Governor Abbott of Texas says if passed, he will sign it into law. Jose? Kelly O'Donnell in Wilmington, thank you. An increasingly dangerous situation is unfolding in South America. Colombia's president is now calling in the military to crack down on massive anti-government protests that have already turned deadly. Von Hilliard has a story. On the streets of Colombia, violent protests. After the country's president, Ivan Duque, ordered 7,000 military personnel into the heart of an uprising. Disparan, disparan. Duque saying, tonight begins the maximum deployment of military. For a month now, protesters here have faced off with police in riot gear, the violence leaving dozens dead and more than 2,000 injured, according to human rights groups. What started as protests against a proposed tax increase has now escalated to unrest over excessive force amid an already dire economic crisis. The tax reform uh, was an excuse for social mobilization. People have no jobs. They are getting only one or two meals a day. In Bogota, this peaceful protester says, we just want the country to change. Civilians have shut down roadways in protest, causing food and gas shortages. The president saying he will not negotiate until the barricades are removed. But with both sides not backing down, Colombians are preparing for another night of unrest. Vaughn Hilliard, NBC News. Coming up, confusion and controversy over whether or not kids still need to wear masks. What doctors say about the new CDC guidance? Here's a question so many parents are asking tonight. Should our kids still be wearing masks? It's the final flashpoint as the CDC gives new guidance. Doctors and some governors are still at odds over the risk. Lindsay Reiser has more. Tonight, the debate over masks now centering on kids after the CDC's newly released summer camp guidelines. The agency now says children and staff who haven't yet been vaccinated should wear masks when indoors. Outside, they can lose the masks, except in areas with a high number of cases, crowded spaces, or prolonged close contact. If all campers and staff members are fully vaccinated, no masks or social distancing are required. Dr. Monica Gandhi says she supports the camp guidelines, but hopes the CDC will change come fall. I hope that my child's school is no masks, no distancing, no cohorting, and normal in the fall. And that there are social consequences to masks. It's a lot about learning about how to form your vowels and learning about when you're younger, how to form your ways of speech. And it is covering up the mouth. The CDC currently recommends universal masking and social distancing in schools. Georgia is the latest state to restrict school mask mandates following Texas, Iowa and Idaho. I think that the CDC guidance should specify a certain metric, again, clean metric of when you lift indoor masking for children. That would be in school and that would be in a store. Advocates for demasking point to CDC data that shows virus transmission rates among kids are lower. 
One California mom says her first grader hates wearing a mask. She has a hard time playing soccer because she feels like a blanket is covering her mouth when she's trying to breathe. And it was like literally the most heartbreaking thing. Currently, only one vaccine is cleared for use on kids 12 to 17 years of age. About 21% of that group has received at least one first dose. Vaccine trials are still underway for kids 12 and under, making masks for kids a debate we may be having for some time. Lindsay Reiser, NBC News, New York. Still ahead, righting a wrong, the new efforts for justice 100 years after one of our country's darkest days. Plus the prime minister's big secret, what he did today that no other prime minister has done in 200 years. Tonight, we're remembering a dark time in our nation's history, one you don't hear much about, the Tulsa massacre that happened 100 years ago. An entire community of black people was attacked and killed by white mobs. Today, Tulsa residents gathered to remember and celebrate the lives of those who were lost. But there's also a new effort to get restitution for the survivors of that deadly attack. Our Morgan Radford has more from Tulsa. Yes. For Viola Fletcher and her brother Hughes Van Ellis, that's where it all burnt up. One of the darkest days in American history is more than a picture. The founder of Black Wall Street. It's a memory of survival. It just kind of stays with you. It's something you don't forget. It happened 100 years ago when both were children. On the night of June 1st, 1921, a white mob stormed a successful area of town known as Black Wall Street. They killed nearly 300 black residents and burned down more than 30 square blocks of black-owned businesses and homes, leaving more than 8,000 homeless. What do you remember from that night? Shooting, people running and screaming, and noise from the air like an airplane, and just so many things it was disturbing, you know, and fires burning and smelling smoke. Did you see black bodies in the black, street? Black bodies in the street, that's right. No one was ever held responsible for the massacre. At the time, Black Wall Street was the largest collection of black-owned businesses in the country. Now, just a few black-owned businesses remain. My grandfather had a clean dry cleaners on Greenwood. For Don Horner Jr., whose insurance office sits in the heart of the Greenwood district, the legacy of that night is still very much alive. What would all this have looked like if the massacre had not happened? It would mirror some of the cities like Atlanta, the Carolinas, where families, uh, professionals, had generations of people maintaining that professional business, being able to maintain that wealth. Today, the unemployment rate for black Tulsans is more than twice the rate of white residents, and more than a third of black Tulsans live below the poverty line. A new lawsuit is trying to change that, estimating property damage at more than $50 million in today's currency, hoping to deliver restitution to survivors like Miss Fletcher, who is now 107 years old. We're looking for so much more than money. Money is very important, but we're also looking for scholarships for descendants and the community. We're looking for business grants for the descendants in the community. We are looking for tax abatements. All in hopes of healing generational wounds that still linger today. Every evening, you know, I kind of have a feeling it's time to run and <laughs> no telling what might happen. But Even today, you have that nervous feeling? Oh, yes, sure. Oh, yes, that's something I've been thinking about for the last year.
100 years. <laughs> 100 years and counting. Morgan Radford, NBC News, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now to a top secret wedding. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson married his partner, Carrie Simmons, at Westminster Cathedral today. The service was so quiet, not even Downing Street senior aides knew about it. And the 30 guests got last-minute invitations. Johnson is the first sitting prime minister to marry in 200 years. When we come back, mending hearts, how one life-saving gift brought two families together. There's good news tonight about a mother's ultimate gift and how one boy lives on in the hearts of others. Seven-year-old Carlos Rolón is a little boy with boundless energy. I feel super great. Now playing at his home near Boston after years on the sidelines. Look at you, yay! Carlos was born with a heart condition and had been gravely ill in and out of surgery, but a year ago, his mom, Sheena, got the news he desperately needed. Some really, really good news. What is? They think they found your heart. You could have a new heart by tomorrow morning. The grueling 11-hour surgery in April 2020, a success. He just looked so warm and so pink. That was the very first sight I got to see, like, this is normal. And it's because of Giselle and because of Sean. Sean Michael Bridges Rivera, a six-year-old from Florida who had died in a car crash. Giselle, tell me a little bit about Sean. Just sweet and kind and silly and a ball of energy. Sean Michael's mom, Giselle, made the difficult decision to donate his heart. The blessing that it could be to turn the worst day of my life to something, anything positive, um, it felt like a, a good choice for me. Giselle and Sheena eventually connected on social media. And last month, the two families gathered in Orlando. It was an emotional meeting they'll never forget. And for Giselle, this was the moment she had been waiting for. hearing her own son's heart beating in Carlos. It's a very strong heart. It was amazing and just beautiful. The two families now forever connected. One mother's choice, giving another the gift of life. Sheena, what's, what's the lesson here? To never give up hope. I have peace knowing that, that um, my son was able to still be a hero. And I know he's proud and I'm proud of him. Sheena and Carlos plan to keep visiting with Giselle and now consider her a part of their family. I'm Jose Diaz-Balart. Thank you for the privilege of your time and good night. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter.
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.